This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Welcome back to another episode of the Bigger Picture series, where we consider some of the big strategic challenges facing Australia and the international community. This week, Michael Shoebridge speaks to Dr. Charles Edel, Global Fellow at the Wilson Centre and Senior Fellow at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. They consider everything from US politics and Biden's domestic agenda to US foreign policy and the significance of AUKUS, as well as a strategic outlook in the Indo-Pacific region and the Biden administration's China strategy. Well, Charlie, um, it's, it's fantastic to see you. I know that the listeners can't, but uh, we're having a, a face-to-face virtual chat. Uh, there's a lot for us to talk about around U.S. strategy, uh, the situation in the Indo-Pacific, uh, the AUKUS agreement and what it means. I thought I'd start, though, with that bigger picture about the Biden administration's agenda. From my point of view, uh, this is really a story of delivery uh, from the Biden administration, from the time that uh Joe Biden stepped into the White House. Uh, he's been working at pace, and I, I think he had three big things that he campaigned on, and he's been really focused on uh, since he became president. And they are getting out of those forever wars, so the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, which the withdrawal itself was pretty ugly, but it was a it was a clear commitment to the American people. Rebuilding American economic and technology, uh, technological strength and infrastructure. And we can see that's something we should talk about. How's that agenda going? Uh, and then facing the systemic challenge of China in the Indo-Pacific, but probably globally as well. You know, on the back of the Afghanistan withdrawal, there was a whole lot of commentary from various countries, including some in, in Australia, about does this show Biden is withdrawing America from the world? Uh, what's your thought, though? Because I think a big answer to that was the AUKUS arrangement. Yeah, um, Michael, first of all, it's great to see you or at least hear you for those of us who are listening in. Uh, and indeed, it's been a very, very uh, busy last couple of months here in Washington. And it's been really busy uh, last month and a half or so for the alliance or now the not quite tri-alliance, uh, I guess we'll say. But In general, I I agree with your assessment that Biden is delivering on exactly what he said he would deliver on, although parts of the agenda are not yet delivered on. Uh, And this is particularly in the domestic legislative area and partially uh, in terms of the defense agenda about realigning American priorities. We know we had the announcement of AUKUS, but the administration has not yet finalized their first defense budget. So that's still a work in progress. But to the point of Afghanistan that you had said, you know, it's interesting that, first of all, it's not been since 2009, 2009, that a majority of Americans approved of continuing the fight in Afghanistan. And yet for a myriad number of reasons, generally strategic, uh, but political as well, administration after administration, Obama, Trump, and Biden for a long time felt the need to stay in Afghanistan. Uh, Biden campaigned that he didn't think this was worth uh, staying in, and he decided that he would get out in contravention 
of the military advice that he got, which is his want to do as commander in chief, right? The military answers to civilians, not the other way around. So, you know, what's interesting is in the exact aftermath of this, uh, there was a lot of commentary, a lot of heated commentary that this showed that the United States was going to withdraw and not defend uh, its other allies. Look at Taiwan, look at Australia, uh, a lot of concern. It's funny because the president himself framed the withdrawal in terms of actually paying more attention to the Indo-Pacific region. He said China uh, in his remarks on this. And I think the majority of Americans supported this decision, but were disappointed and disapproved of the way in which it was undertaken. And polling really bears that out if you look at this, that people say that they were a majority of Americans were upset by the way that this happened and yet still support the administration's decision to withdraw. So, you know, it's hard to project forward uh, toward the midterms. I, you and I had emailed some questions and we had started talking about this. It's very clear uh, that the Republicans in Congress want to use this as a hammering point against the administration. It's unclear if that in and of itself will be an issue that the American public locks onto as being one that they vote on. When we, come, when we get to those elections in twenty, I wonder, I wonder, Charles, if uh, that idea of right decision, but was it well implemented, could echo with progress in the domestic agenda? You know, the infrastructure package that seems, you know, it's very complicated within the Democrats between the progressives and the conservatives, and then it's kind of complicated in Congress as well, with the Republicans really not wanting to hand Biden any kind of win on something that's really important. So will that uh, narrative about, uh, even if it's the right decision, can Biden get this done, be something uh, that, that really is is important uh, into, the, in, into the midterms and then leading into the 2024 presidential election? You know, I want to be careful and not just sounding like a pundit who says, on the one hand, on the other hand, but I actually think in terms of the outcome of this major uh, legislative uh, package that is primarily but not exclusively aimed at the domestic market, it is indeed too early to say. Uh, there's a lot of frustration now, a lot of angst, because, of course, Democrats control not only the White House, but the Senate and the House, and they have not yet passed uh, their package. Uh, we'd have to get a little bit into the weeds because there's been one package passed, but whether or not that combines with the other package. And really, we're talking about a package that is in the trillions of dollars. So we are talking about a massive and indeed historic legislative package if it gets approved. So I say that I think it's a little too early to say because they kicked out the deadline. They wanted to have it done already. That clearly has not happened. They kicked it out till the end of this coming month. My guess is they might kick it out further again. But if they can't pass it, that indeed would be a sign that this administration cannot get its legislative act together. And it would shoot themselves in the foot uh, before the midterm elections. However, if we find that they do end up uh, passing it, and it does look like there is some convergence uh, within the Democrats, although who knows where they'll end up on this. A month from now, we'll be talking about a historic slate of domestic legislation. So uh, again, uh, a month yes. is not that much time, but the shape of what the administration looks like, whether it's covered in uh, roses or the opposite of that, uh, I think will really be borne out about whether or not they can muster this one through. Mm. Now, uh, we might shift from that because I, I think that's really interesting because you're, you're right to make that point that 
even the small infrastructure bill still has a trillion uh, after its price tag. Uh, and the big one is more like three and a half trillion. So is it a loss to pass a trillion dollar infrastructure package? Uh, but shifting now to that bigger uh, strategic picture, uh, AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US agreement announced in mid-September, looks like the centrepiece of uh, the Biden administration and it's these two partners, Australia and the UK, saying, no, we are now focused on the strategic issues of the Indo-Pacific and the systemic challenge that China uh, presents to each of us. That's That's what it looks like to me. And then there's a complicating thing about how do we bring along other partners that are not part of this arrangement, uh, particularly the Europeans? But is this actually the centerpiece of Biden's Indo-Pacific strategy at this point? Well, it's clearly a core component of it. And I think it is a centerpiece in terms of it is a it is a very large geopolitical move. But it is wrong to think of it in terms as this is it. This is the strategy. Uh, AUKUS and the sub-deal in particular is the whole kit and caboodle, because I don't think that's actually what is happening. And I think that's only, that's a rather, not that you said this, Michael, but I've, I've seen some commentary, right, that kind of says that, look, this is it, and what a narrow focus, because there's no other kind of technological, uh, there's no other uh, kind of political uh, package, and this is only part of it. But it's, you know, you've done some great work on this, uh, you know, I'm a historian by training, and sometimes I'm reminded of my historic historian roots, which are, when in doubt, read the documents. And everyone who's listening who has an interest in this should actually go and read the Osman statements, uh, the uh, joint statements, and the AUKUS statements. Because, of course, there's a fair amount of ambiguity built in. Uh, there's a fair amount that's outside of the public view. But if you only read the statements that are there, it's very clear that this is not just about submarines. This is not just about Australia and the United States. And this is a major marker that's thrown down in terms of reorienting the United States. The impetus is to help turbocharge where Australia has already been going, to put more players in the field, to redress a altered uh, balance of power in the region. And of course, I think whether or not it's been stated by any of the leaders, I think the hope is implicitly there that it's meant to galvanize others to show the flag a bit more as well. Yes, that's interesting because um, I didn't mention the Quad Leaders meeting. You know, if AUKUS hadn't happened, we'd be sitting here right now dissecting the Quad Leaders meeting between the leaders of Japan, India, the US and Australia. But to me, AUKUS and the Quad and then the transatlantic partnerships with Europe um, are really the key groupings for this systemic uh, response to China. And they, I think they are and, and should uh, be thought of as mutually reinforcing, uh, even if there's a whole lot of difficulty there. So right after the AUKUS arrangement was announced, there was some horrible uh, diplomatic and relationship trouble with the French, more from Australia, really, than from the US, but difficult times. But not long after that, the first US-EU uh, TTC uh, discussion was happening around the issues of the strategic implications of technology and how Europe and America could cooperate better. So to me, that says 
the really big strategic picture is a convergence around the democratic world on the challenge of, of an authoritarian assertive China. And that is all reinforced by AUKUS as well as the Quad. Well, listen, this is going to be like a really short podcast because I think we're just going to be in violent agreement on a lot of these things. Uh, but, you know, I, I would say that before, before we get into where the Europeans and the Americans are, um, you, you've raised an interesting point here uh, that you know, it's funny. I wrote a piece, I think, back in June or July about for the Kiwi press uh, about what are the prospects of closer U.S.-New Zealand coordination cooperation. Uh, on things. And my assessment was uh, that we are are in potentially really, really good waters here uh, because if we think about everything that matters to New Zealand, uh, right, a climate, a set of climate initiatives, uh, thinking about development aid, uh, making sure that there is transparency in how we do that, infrastructure work, empowerment of women and minorities, you know, there's a lot of synergy that you can see what New Zealand has for a long time been asking the United States to do. What I said in this piece, though, was there's a positive agenda, but that does not mean that there's also uh, that there's not a negative agenda at work. That is working on thwarting negative things from happening. Mm. And you have to see those as two sides of the same coin. Mm. Uh, now, forget about the piece on U.S.-Kiwi relations. I think that same insight applies here as well. There's some commentators who have fastened in on the quad and said, wait, what happened to the security elements of the quad? It's very clear that the leaders made a deliberate decision that the quad is going to create answers to public challenges and provide public goods. It's there to be an an affirmative agenda setting organization. Uh, And there's been lots of there were lots of complaints that there was no affirmative agenda in the past. It's also very clear that the Quad, whether or not it states it, works in the security realm. AUKUS works in the security realm. Japan, Australia, US trilateral works in the security realm. So two of these are happening at the same time. And I think that is the mark of good strategy that you can advance both of them at the same time. So the the big caveat that we should say, and I know you're gonna ask about this shortly too, is whether or not it can deliver. Uh, I think the bar has been raised now very high. The gauntlet has been thrown down in some ways. That's all to the good. But the question is, can the United States, can Australia both take the actions that they need to much quicker than they would probably like to, to make sure that some of these things come online as quickly as they possibly can? Yes, exactly. And you can see that with the quad, can't you? Like the delivery of COVID vaccines in Southeast Asia at scale, uh, you know, held back by the Delta outbreak in all three of our countries, um, more so in India, perhaps from a vaccine availability point of view. But I think that's shifting. I think we will see the ability to have large volumes of vaccines made in India and uh, the US available through the Quad into Southeast Asia. Uh, but a- another really uh, big issue here in Australia is all right, so why is, why is what's happening in Congress and the midterms so important when we're talking about strategy? Well, it's because of the prospect of a return Trump, uh, Trump 2.0, and uh, a fear uh, that if that were to happen, then these big moves, uh, AUKUS, uh, the momentum in the quad, 
those self, those reinforcing uh, shifts, uh, would that would there still be momentum, or would that just be disrupted by that? You know, uh, there will there is. I, I don't want to prejudice the question of kind of doing you know putting odds on what will happen in twenty twenty four. We can we can talk about that. That's but that's a separate conversation. Mm. Uh, what I would will say is that AUKUS, at least here in Washington, is initially extremely popular across party lines. Uh, I think part of that is just kind of the high regard that Australia uh, is being held in in Washington for being in some ways kind of the first to receive Chinese punishment and the first to respond on a number of different fronts. Uh, part of that, of course, I think is to due to some good credit to the Australian embassy and Ambassador Sinadinas, making sure that he set up all the right meetings for the prime minister, meeting with both the Republicans and the Democrats in the House, uh, in the Senate, uh, chairs of the Friends of Australia caucus. I mean, there's, there is a wellspring of good feeling, but also making sure that those connections are working. And the reason I raise all those points is Australia thus far is not a partisan issue at all. AUKUS thus far is not a partisan issue at all. Everything is hyper-partisan here in Washington, with the exception of China in large strokes. When we get more specific, parties have different uh, takes on this, but both Republicans and Democrats both want there to be a much more competitive mindset in the United States. And there is also broad bipartisan support for the role that Australia has played over the last couple of years and the role that it will continue to play. And the reason I kind of put those uh, points out as context is regardless of who is president in 2024, I have my own preferences. Everyone in America does. First of all, I don't think any submarine deal will be scuttled. That is not scuttled in America from administration to administration. It's a little different than Australian politics. That it stays consistent, I think, over the long term in the US, point one. Uh, point two is, even if we think of the wildly divergent viewpoints of the role that America should play in the world, everything from a leadership role in the international system to the America first, it's funny because both of those positions would agree that allies need to be able to do more uh, for different reasons. Uh, for, you know, the proponents of both of those different views have different reasons for thinking that. Uh, one, because uh, the liberal internationalists, because they want us all to do more, the America Firsters, because they want America to do less. Regardless, thinking of ways that American allies can become empowered, particularly when they want to become empowered and when they are as trusted as Australia, makes this, uh, in my mind, not something that's going to suffer from political vicissitudes all that much. Yes. Yeah, I, I still think the delivery on it between now and the next presidential election is really important uh, to show it's actually functioning, it's it's doing good things. And that probably you know, shifts me to AUKUS. And I think you're spot on when you say it's not just nuclear submarines. So uh, there's a growing realisation of that here in Australia. But really, AUKUS would be fundamentally important if the nuclear submarines weren't in it. Uh, because it's it's a technology accelerator between the UK, the US and Australia with the intent of being an urgent deliverer of more credible capabilities uh, in the Indo-Pacific, which is all about deterring conflict in the Indo-Pacific given the challenge of China. 
That's that's how I see it. But that really does put the weight on delivering on elements of AUKUS well before the next presidential election. You know, we all know that Australian submarines are not going to be in the water anytime soon, uh, new nuclear powered ones. The question is, what is going to happen soon? Because we're not really all hoping that things might get better between now and say 2035 or 2040. And the question of where US and British submarines make ports of call, uh, where they decide to home port, if not rotationally deploy, uh, where aircraft of all shapes and sizes uh, decide to base themselves, uh, refuel and have the logistic capabilities there to sustain them, where the kind of, you know, again, we're getting into a very defense heavy conversation here about the idea for munitions to be readily available, uh, the idea about, you know, whether or not supply chains can actually be uh, produced, co-produced uh, with Alice. There's a lot of stuff here that could happen quite quickly, including uh, some uh, ports becoming more operational, even if Australian submarines are not yet in the water soon. So I do think uh, we, we not neither of us can afford to wait another 10 years, 15 years. So the question is, how quickly can we begin to get stuff into the region that matters at scale that actually begins to work and serve as a deterrent? That's the question. Yes, yes. I should mention here, I think um, it's a byproduct of the uh, decision around the nuclear submarines cancelling the French program that Australia has billions of dollars freed up over this decade to invest in everything else in the AUKUS partnership, you know, AI, cyber, advanced missiles, quantum technology, other undersea capabilities, and those improved facilities for operating our own militaries, US and UK facilities. So uh, a byproduct of AUKUS is Australia is cashed up to make these investments. I see that as a, a real positive in dealing with Congress uh, and uh, Americans who have an obvious attachment to the idea of American money for American power and American purposes. This will be a real joint investment with Australia doing quite a bit of heavy lifting uh, on the on the funding side. Um, what do you think, though, are the, the things that have to be managed with the next steps in the Biden strategic agenda? So the one thing uh, in my mind is there's the climate change engagement with China, uh, there's the economic relationship with China, and there's continued speculation about will there be compromises on the more strategic elements of the relationship to achieve gains, whether it's in climate change or in the economic relationship? How would you characterize what you're seeing out of the administration? Uh, I would characterize pretty clearly what I'm seeing out of the administration as uh, there will not be compromise. There, will, there might be conversation that will not be compromise. Uh, the administration could not be clearer on this. John Kerry could not be more clear, obviously working at the behest of where the White House is, that climate is really important. Of course, we want China on board. We will not sacrifice anything else we were doing in order to get them on board. Separately, there's even a really interesting conversation that's developed around climate here about what is the most useful way to get China on board and whether or not cooperating with them or in fact competing and pushing them harder uh, to live up to some of the commitments they've made is a better climate approach. Uh, that's one. Two, in terms of kind of domestic uh, U.S. kind of domestic economic concerns, you know, the administration here ran a six-month review on the Trump tariffs, right, about where they were going to go with them. And they just rolled out the 
uh, results of those uh, that review last week with Catherine Tai, the U.S. Trade Representative, giving a talk at CSIS here in Washington. And her answer was, um, we're not going to roll anything back right now. Uh, we will think about them. Uh, we will think about selectively. We might take targeted exemptions for particular U.S. businesses uh, specifically, but they will still review them. What we are going to do is uh, make sure that we want to keep China to their commitments uh, on the phase one of the trade deal, which they are not living up to. And point two, and I think this is a really important one, they said, we are not moving on to phase two, right? This is the, the Trump strategy was you have the phase one, the commitment to buy some U.S. Uh, agricultural ex exports, and then you would move on to the hard stuff in uh, phase two, the structural adjustments of the Chinese economy. Uh, I think the Biden administration has shown that it's quite clear-eyed, and they said, we're not going to do that because we know that they won't make structural adjustments. Mm. So we're going to see if we can get them to live up to phase one trade deal, and we're just going to understand that they're not going to make adjustments, and we're going to adjust as is. Yes. Well, I think that does really support your argument that this is not a U.S. administration that's going to use play to the Chinese playbook of, well, actually, I've got to make a bunch of compromises to get you to the table. Uh, it is more a time to see what China is doing to deliver on commitments it's made before. That, I think, will be at the heart of the, uh, not the U.S. discussion, but the members of the CPTPP, that huge regional trade deal, a discussion around the prospects of Chinese membership because to get into this very high standard regional economic trade club, you actually need to show that you can meet the standards and China's a million miles from that at the moment. So maybe there's convergence there on the new way of engaging uh, around economic policy with China. Charles, we can't uh, not talk about economics and, and the Indo-Pacific. So uh, right now, the main economic strategy I see America is having is the Trump tariffs on China because they've displaced trade with the US, uh, quite a bit of trade anyway, uh, from China into parts of Southeast Asia. So to me, that's the most positive economic strategy that, that the US has at the moment, aside from the emerging digital strategy, which I think is fundamentally important. But really, the region is facing some really difficult issues on regional trade just through two membership applications, uh, Taiwan's for the CPTPP and China's for the CPTPP. Uh, that's meant to be the highest standard trade agreement on the planet uh, and certainly in, in the Indo-Pacific. If America wanted a trade strategy, how is not reversing that decision on the CPTPP not the smartest move Biden could make? Well, it's obviously the start, smartest strategic move that Biden could make. Anchoring the US, I mean, this is the reason why the Obama administration spent so much time negotiating, the T, as it was then called the TPP. However, there's been a political calculation made by both Democrats, Hillary Clinton first shying away from TPP, uh, Republicans, Donald Trump saying it was the worst deal ever, and Joe Biden himself uh, being very shy about committing the United States to TPP. Um, so it's a political calculation that says that, and, and the logic of the political calculation is that uh, free trade might sound good, might be good strategically, but it's done more harm than good to the American worker. So we want to be careful about who it is that we're advantaging, 
when we sign up for free trade deals. And in fact, the American public does not like these free trade deals. Uh, so that that's the political logic here. The funny part is that it's not clear that that political logic is borne out in reality. Uh, now, the Chicago Council uh, on Foreign Affairs does the best polling in America uh, on views of America's role in the world. They have a poll every year. The new polling data just came out uh, this month. Support for free trade has always been decently high. Uh, in fact, it's now gone up. I think the numbers are something like 68% of Americans think globalization is on balance a good thing. Roughly three quarters say trade is good for consumers and the overall economy and America's standard of living. And 60% even consider trade to be good for creating American jobs. And one of the really interesting takeaways is this is not a partisan issue that cuts across partisan lines. Mm. So the the prevailing political logic has been don't do free trade deals because it not because we don't want to do them, but because it hurts the American worker. It seems, though, that from a polling perspective, that this might be an argument that the administration could make and be embraced by, uh, but hasn't made yet. Well, I was just thinking along with that, uh, the other political argument that takes advantage of uh, congressional bipartisanship, which is such a rare commodity, and American polling um, data is if America were to join the CPTPP, it, it's, a, it's a deal that China isn't in. And this, I think there's a lot more confidence around American trade where you remove China from the picture as the one that's taking shameless advantage of America. And instead, it opens up the rest of the Indo-Pacific to American trade and economics. So there's, I think there's a powerful connection between the position on China and this polling data you're talking about out of the Chicago Council. You know, I think I, I think that's really borne out because the other thing that's borne out by this uh, recent uh, polling data is that Americans, no one should under misunderstand this, are not free traders to their core. Uh, America is not pro-free trade in every circumstance. And in fact, if you kind of dig into the numbers a little bit more deeply, large majorities of Americans favor restricting commerce with China. Uh, and banning, in fact, U.S. companies from selling sensitive technology to Beijing. Uh, so there does seem to be a convergence on the strategic level and potentially on the political level as well. But it's a political argument that neither party has embraced at this point yet. Mm, although right now is the perfect time to do it, isn't it? Because now a move from America to join the CPTPP immediately complicates and disadvantages China's application for membership, which is going to be a real arm wrestle in the region, not because anyone actually thinks China can meet the standards in the CPTPP, but because China is clearly intimidating countries into accepting its its um, application regardless of standards. That's the path that they're on. So uh, this is now the right time for a US political move. You know, that's an interesting logic that I hadn't considered in terms of the intimidation factor that China might be exerting. Uh, the two things I would just say on that, Michael, are uh, uh, one, uh, there's a reason I do kind of strategic assessment and not political assessment, because I can't tell you whether or not this is the appropriate political time to launch this. There's a lot of things going on 
politically in the U.S. I know you're you're talking about the broader strategic environment, but that is fundamentally a political consideration. The second point, though, I would say is whether or not there is pressure from China now that they've launched an application to join this. Look, even without the United States, the CPTPP is the most comprehensive trade deal that has yet been trying, and the standards to which signatory nations have to hold themselves to is very, very high. You know, it's funny, even when the United States was pushing TPP, when it was going to sign it under the Obama administration, it never said there was exclusionary of China. The point was, China had to change the way that they did things if it wanted to join in ways that would be deeply painful and quite honestly, are antithetical to the way that Xi Jinping has steered the political economy of China. So with or without the United States, and I hope the United States joins this, uh, I think that China's application will be quite challenging for China, regardless of whether or not the United States... Oh, absolutely. In fact, my thought about it is uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Abe probably gives a path to manage China's application to the CPTPP with how he approached China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, When asked whether Japan would join the initiative, uh, he said, well, uh, Japan would certainly consider joining the initiative as long as the Belt and Road Initiative had standards around transparency, assessment of viable business cases, uh, didn't result in undue debt burdens on countries that couldn't afford to pay. The list of things, attributes that he said the Belt and Road had to have, he knew full well it comprehensively didn't. And if China changed it to have those attributes, it would undercut the whole logic that Beijing has of strategic influence through the PRI. Same thing on the CPTPP. Welcome the membership, but say, now before your membership can really be assessed, you need to establish a track record in meeting the standards that are required. And right now, you know, speaking from Canberra, China can't do that. It's We have a free trade agreement with China and they're engaged in overt economic coercion that clearly breaches the fundamental underpinnings of that agreement. So well, that's the other right. approach might be the way to handle it, but the bigger picture would be the US uh, joining. Anyway, um, I think we're probably out of time now, but thank you, Charles. That was a, a great discussion and uh, always good to have a little bit of Uh, backwards and forwards on this, but even more particular, great to have an insight from inside America uh, projecting back uh, into into camp. Thanks, Charles. Right back at you. And I know everyone is, I'm sure, really enjoying this, but you can't imagine the logistical feats of coordinating time schedules on the time difference. So thank you, guys. This has been uh, terrific uh, catching up with you. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.